Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bike Radar podcast. Now, today we have a very special guest and someone who I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. It is uh, Josh Portner, the CEO of Silca Velo. Now, Josh, before joining Silca, spent over 13 years working at Zip, developing aerodynamic wheels and components. And he's also been a performance and kind of technical consultant for a number of professional teams, top athletes and kind of you know major world records and things like that. Many of our listeners may also know him as the host of the Marginal Gains podcast. Uh, and if you don't know that podcast, then I thoroughly recommend checking it out because it is full of uh, rich tech nuggets. But we are very thankful to be joined by him today. Josh, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Cool. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, thank you so much for uh, <laughs> giving us a little bit of your time. Uh, obviously, you, whenever whenever I listen to the Marginal Gains podcast, you always seem to have so many irons in the fire. <laughs> yeah, that is that is generally true. You've got two uh, two kids, four dogs. This company, uh, <laughs> part of our company is uh, so we're, we're Aeromind is the company that owns Silka, and so Aeromind is what does all of the uh, performance consulting and design and things like that. So it it kind of ends up being two companies, uh, you know, in terms of operations for me. So yeah, always a little bit crazy, but never boring. No, certainly not. And I think, you know, you could, I suppose, you know, without kind of, this is, this, this is a compliment, but you could kind of apply that to Silker in a way. And that some of the products always sometimes seem a little bit crazy, but they're certainly never boring. And uh, I think your kind of move into 3D printing in recent years has, uh, you know, been a kind of, you guys are kind of right on the vanguard of that, right? And and, and I think I've, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was kind of like, what are the kind of advantages of 3D printing from a kind of manufacturer and consumer point of view? Because we kind of hear a lot about it, but it isn't, you know, it hasn't quite gone mainstream yet. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly one of the big reasons I wanted to, to be there. I mean, I, I look at this technology and I think there's no doubt in my mind that it's the future of all manufacturing. Um, you know, maybe not the two-year, five-year, 10-year future, but certainly the 50-year-out future. Um, you know, the, the real advantages are that you can essentially print anything in any geometry um, almost without limit. You can print unlimited geometries on the inside of things, right, which has never been possible before uh, in history. And the last one is you 
with really one or two raw materials, the 3D printer can can make anything, right? So, you know, you think if if we're gonna, you know, build a colony on the moon or, or on Mars, you know, you're not gonna send lathes and mills and uh, you know multi-axis machining centers and because with all those machines you then have to have specific inputs right i have to have bar stock or tube um or plate stock or you know each machine requires its own type of material and then can only do limited actions and and with the 3d printer if you have powder in our case titanium powder and a printer you can print anything with that um so I think for, for me, it's, it's just clearly the future. And then the side piece of that, that I think doesn't get enough, um, attention is really the environmental, um, impact of, of these machines. You know, if you think if you're machining titanium, uh, or aluminum, you, you, you have what we in aerospace call the buy to fly ratio. And, and typically you're buying about 10 times more material than ends up in your finished part. Um, and so you have roughly a 90% scrap or waste rate. And then that material needs to be you know, cleaned and recycled. And in some cases it can't be recycled. Um, whereas with the powder for 3d printing, um, we end up with about a 98 to 99% use rate because the powder that isn't solidified in one print just gets recycled through the machine and can be printed in the next print. Um, so while the tech is, it's pretty new, it's super expensive, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were at the absolute cutting edge of people figuring out how to do it. Cause I think when it does start to mainstream, I want to make sure that we've got a, you know, 10 year head start, uh, on everybody else. And, and what are the kind of, um, what are the, what are the kind of current things that are preventing it from going mainstream? What are the things that are preventing you from that building that colony on the moon? <laughs> well, I mean, at the moment it's just very, very expensive. You know, the machines are, are crazy expensive the raw material you know is somewhere uh you know titanium uh bar stock or plate is probably somewhere on the order of you know 50 dollars a pound um and powder titanium powder for 3d printing is somewhere on the order of you know 500 dollars a pound so you have now you you do get like we said the uh, a much higher use percentage out of it but it's you know, just the investment to get into this space is, uh, is quite high. You know, we, we joked that when we made the, uh, we 3d printed the rear end of the Alex Dowsett, our record bike, uh, yes. because factor doesn't make a track bike. And so we <laughs> cut the rear off a bike, we 3d printed, and we used 100% of the capacity of the machine, um, in doing that. And, and the way it works, you're dosing titanium with each layer. And so to fill the entire capacity of the machine, you end up with like a 12 by 12 by about 14 inch kind of almost cube, but sort of rectangular solid of, uh, of titanium. And you do the math on it. Like that's like $200,000 of titanium powder, right? Just, and and of course the part comes out and the, and you know, the part isn't nearly that expensive, but you know, just, you got to have the money to fill the machine in the first place. So, um, you know, for me, it, 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 better machines, faster machines, um, you know, are going to help reduction in powder costs is going to help. And then honestly, we need, we need this young generation of engineers to, to grow up immersed in this because it's everything my generation learned is wrong. Uh, when you go to 3d print, I mean, you know, every single time I, 
I think I have an idea how something should be done, it, it won't work. And it's my, you know, the, we work with Renishaw out of the UK and, uh, the head of uh, technology there, he was pretty funny. He said, whatever you do, do not hire anybody with traditional manufacturing experience to run your machine. He's like, you find the youngest, smartest engineer you can find and just let him go nuts. Um, and, and it's been totally true. Cause you know, I'll walk back there and you know, your print, uh, uh, you know, for example, like if you wanted to print something like a cube or I've got, and of course our, this is radio, but you know, I've got this little cube that you can see here of mesh and the best way to print a cube is off of a single corner. And so it just grows up into space, delicately balanced on this little half millimeter stick, essentially. Um, who would think that? It's nuts. I mean, you, <laughs> yeah, it you comes off the machine, you're just like, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and flat doesn't work, right? And so <laughs> it's just, there's a million details like that. But, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, we're printing titanium today. Um, advanced aluminum alloys are in development. We know that. We've seen them. Uh, we've actually worked with some companies that are doing some of the testing. Uh, that'll probably be here in a few years, um, productionizable. And then, you know, and then it's going to be carbon, right? It, it's, it, it, it's coming and it's coming, uh, you know, like a, like a steam train, it's just coming slowly <laughs> like a steam sure. train. So, um, but no, it's 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 all terribly exciting. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Like it is coming, and you know, as you say, if we look at those kind of you know ultra high end projects, you know, such as the kind of the the Dalsic hour uh, record bike that you mentioned, and obviously you, you mentioned Renishaw there, and and obviously the GB team have used some 3D printed components on the the Hope HPT. Um, it's it is coming in there at the top of the sport and i think um you know in in a kind of way the, the most one of the most exciting things from a kind of bicycle point of view is is that idea that you know you're kind of freed from this uh constraint of having you know mass production right if you make a carbon fiber component you've got to have a mold molds are incredibly expensive you, you know require a kind of in, mm. investment in order to, you know if you want to make a handlebar you need to maybe sell x amount of them to make it kind of commercially viable but i suppose with a 3d printer you know if i if i'm very particular about handlebar choice and and someone's got a 3d printing machine like within reason obviously you know it's possible to make kind of smaller batches do more iterations faster and and does that speed up the development process and lead to more gains no, absolutely. I mean, the, the Dowsett Hour Records is a great example. You know, he announced that I think six, six or eight weeks out from the time he wanted to do it. And we got a call on a Monday from Factor who, who said, we, we don't have a track bike <laughs> and we're, <laughs> we now have a time frame. And we, we started that development, uh, during that phone call. We had the CAD model by Tuesday and printed a first prototype, um, which actually, actually have right here at my desk. If you can, again, it's radio, you can't see it. Um, but we printed the prototype, found a couple things that we wanted to change. Um, while that was printing, we actually ran this whole suite of uh, finite element analysis on it to try to make it stiffer, lighter, you know, all the stuff that you, you want it to be. Um, we, it was like a 14 hour print. So by Wednesday morning, we knew the orientation that we wanted to print the part. We loaded the updated model that had been modeled while the other one was printing. Um, we printed it Wednesday. It came out of the machine Thursday morning. We heat treated it. Uh, it we're, we're very fortunate here. We have Rolls-Royce jet engine right here in town. So I, I literally drive it in my car about a mile from here, <laughs> here to be heat treated. 
Um, and we shipped it on a Friday. And, and I think, you know, by traditional means, I mean, that, that's just unheard of. Um, you know, we, we have the advantage of, you know, think of like the, the chisel of the little 3d printed, uh, uh, computer mount that we make, you know, we, we can fit about 48 of those on a plate and the beauty is they're printed to order. So there's no waste. Um, you know, so if the orders come in and I need four for a Madone and, you know, six for a SL seven and, and. 10 for this, you know, the zip stem and, um, you know, whatever, five for pin. Like we just in the computer, put those on a plate and hit go. And, you know, 15, 16 hours later, you'll, you have exactly what you wanted. So, you know, it, it really is brilliant in that, you know, the part cost is very high, but there's no tooling. There's no need to overproduce, which I think, you know, we're, we're about to feel a big period of, uh, the, the cost of overproduction in this industry that, you know, our whole industry went nuts um, <laughs> overproducing during COVID because demand was so good. And now all of a sudden uh, demand is slowing a little bit and there's a glut of inventory. Um, and it's just not, it's not good for anybody, right? It, it's, it's money tied up. It's environmentally bad. It, it, there's all these downsides to it. And I think, um, you know, t- 20 years from now, 50 years from now, I really don't know what the time frame is, but you'll, you know, you'll come to a website like ours and, um, you know, select the parts that you want and they'll print and ship the next day. And, and I think, you know, I think that's coming for bikes. I think that's coming for saddles. I, 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 I think it's coming in all aspects of, of, uh, th- this sport and, and honestly all the sports. Um, and like I said, we, we just want to make sure we're at the absolute bleeding edge of that, uh, p- partly cause that's my bent, you know, I'm a technology guy. <laughs> And I can't help myself. Um, it, it, you know, I, I just want to be there learning uh, and doing it. But also, I think it's, you know, it, it's our chance to drive that future state. You know, I don't want to be along for the ride. I want to be in the driver's seat. And, um, you know, it's these are these are very exciting times if you're an engineer and if you're in manufacturing. I can't wait to see how the UCI reacts when we're all riding completely custom one-off parts. I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> It'll because be as long as your available. socks aren't too high you'll be fine <laughs> yeah exactly as long as it's all commercially available i'm sure that's absolutely fine um well you mentioned obviously environmental costs there and kind of you know as you say it's not kind of not good for for anyone in that sort of sense and and i think one of the things that um another of the things that silka have been uh you know, right at the forefront in recent years is kind of uh drivetrain efficiency as well and and i think you know often you know when it's, you know, it's a big hobby horse of mine. I think often when I talk about it, people think I'm you know, talking about it from a performance point of view. And you're, you know, we're talking about kind of like X, you know, half a watt saved from, you know, a clean running drivetrain and things like that. But I think for me, the kind of uh, the bigger thing is the fact that, you know, less wear on your parts. And, um, you know, I know Silka have obviously massively uh, expanded in in the kind of that field recently. Obviously, you've got your kind of uh, wax based lubricants as well as the synergetic lubricants but um can, can you t- can you talk a little bit about kind of uh you know why that makes such a big difference yeah so you know i think this uh, efficiency friction thing to me is exciting in that i think it's a lot like it's a lot like the tire pressure thing you know that we we've kind of i think been right at the forefront of changing people's thinking about that and i think the opportunity in these areas is kind of fun that it's, it's a space that by and large, I think the, 
the conventional wisdom was believed to be settled. <laughs> you know, this is how this works and everybody knows it. And when you really, really dig in to the technology, what, what you realize is that, no, actually, we, we don't really fully understand it. And there's a lot of opportunity here uh, to do better. And so, you know, honestly, I, I initially came into this, you know, way back in my, my zip days, um, when we were looking at hot melt waxing chains and trying to find, you know, a half watt or a watt, uh, of efficiency. And, you know, I've waxed chains for, you know, my God, the Cancellara and you know, the Olympics and multiple tours to France. And, and it was really, uh, zero friction cycling out of Australia who kind of brought in this element of, uh, wear. Uh, and extending life and, and, you know, his concept of, of really using the, uh, wear reduction is almost a proxy for friction. Um, which, you know, ultimately we, we have multiple machines in house that we can actually do a combination of things. Cause as, as you can imagine, there are, you know, if you pack a chain with grease, it, you can really cut the wear, but your the friction goes up. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not exactly <laughs> one-to-one. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think all, all of that groundwork laid over a 10 year period or so, you know, really came to help us, uh, during the pandemic when all of a sudden you couldn't get chain, you couldn't get cassette. Um, and this concept of, Hey, we can make your chain last five to 10 times longer. Um, you know, became a huge deal. I think if you look at, at internet postings from you know, forums and stuff that people are chatting you know, two, three years ago, people are saying, or more than I guess, four or five years ago, people are saying things like, you know, I, I don't care. Chains are cheap. Uh, yeah. And over the last year, <laughs> people care a lot because yeah, it's no one's not saying like the that chain anymore. cost. It's the, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, I mean, the, what, one of the, one of the big companies right now has a 600 day lead time for chain, 600 days. It's like, uh, you know, what, what are you going to be doing 600 days? From? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but that's a long time. And so, you know, I think in light of, of a shortage that starts to make a lot of sense to people. And then when you really get them thinking about the true cost, you know, when your chain wears out, it takes the cassette with it. And, yeah. and if it goes a little further, it'll take the chain rings yeah. with it. Well, I mean, some of these, these modern drivetrains, I mean, you can be five, $600 for a cassette. Yeah, that's, totally. that's yeah. crazy. So, so yeah, this is a, for me, a fun area. Cause it, it, you know, it hits that marginal gains efficiency thing, but it really has all of these other payoffs um, and then, we're, you know, what I'm really proud of the technology we developed is is we're also able to do it with very environmentally friendly ingredients, um, and and without any uh, fluorinated uh, ingredients. You know, no the PFAS or uh, as we talk about, you know, we've been able to eliminate all of that, and and we're really hoping to kind of drive this movement in the industry of you know of eliminating PFAS from lubricants you know we've actually published our our lubricant recipes <laughs> to say <laughs> right? like because i think it's it's important you know you look at um you know a traditional bottle of of dry lube quote unquote it's like an environmental hand grenade you know yeah, it, it's, it's mostly just maybe, like fluid carrier fluid <laughs> yeah it's like 90 percent pentane or heptane or some other nasty volatile organic chemical and then maybe 10 or 15 percent uh pfas uh, chemicals that, you know, are the, the quote unquote forever chemicals, right? And we know they, they cause all sorts of, you know, birth defects, uh, increased cancer rates. And we're just pouring that crap on our chains and then letting it drip off into the environment. Well, you know, the pentanes and the heptanes are flashing off and becoming, you know, strong greenhouse gases. 
it's just madness. And, and then when you look at the, the friction facts data, those lubricants are all quite high friction. Or you look at the zero friction data, those lubricants all have high chain wear. And so it's just like a triple disaster. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet there's entire, you know, there's half a dozen companies out there that have built their companies on that. And so, you know, I, I'm not out to put anybody out of business, but you know, that's, which is why we just, we just tell you what's in our products. Um, and it works, you know, in some cases, I think there's, uh, you know, one of the, the big competitors out there, something like 20 times longer chain life and seven mm-hmm. Watts friction reduction. I mean, that's, those numbers are crazy. You know, yeah, I, totally. I can't even believe those numbers and I developed the product. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but yeah. that's, that's what the independent labs are showing. So, so yeah, it's, you know, that, that's when I feel really strongly about, and I think to me also is a great kind of encapsulation of what, what technology can and should do. Right. You know, P- yeah. PFAS was a huge thing. 60 years ago. That was, you know, it, it helped put men on the moon. Um, and that's great. But now that we understand how bad it is, let's stop. Uh, and we have technology that's even better. So let's pivot and go do that. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think, like you said, you know, you mentioned friction facts there and obviously uh, zero friction cycling. You know, I think when, um, you know, but I, I remember, you know, this is before I worked in the cycling industry, but I remember when friction facts sort of, put, you know, collaborated with, you know, like the Cervelo News to, uh, publish their kind of first rounds of data and you know it's really really exciting and and, and t- you know zero friction cycling as you say that adam kieran has completely kind of moved the game on in in that respect because it's you know it's really difficult to to uh, to test these things and there isn't a kind of industry agreed standard way of doing it you know if if, if you know, i think we've had this conversation before but if you you know i'm a, i'm a product reviewer but if you sent me a bottle of chain lubricant to review like y- you know I wax my own chains I, I, and I kind of read the data and I think I know what works, but like I couldn't, you know, I can't go on my turbo trainer with, with its kind of plus or minus 1% accuracy and and tell you whether, you know, X chain lube is is faster by comparing, you know, my kind of on-bike power meter to the trainer power meter. Like, they, you know, the accuracy isn't tight enough. So um, without kind of this independent data i think i think the situation was really murky but i think we've really moved on in that area so yeah it's been it's been really good yeah agreed i i, I think we the, the more independent data the better for all of us right and i say that as a company that you know wants to sell you products and wants you to believe my data but i think you know the more the more independent uh, data, you know, companies out there sharing, I, I think it's really going to push manufacturers to do better, uh, and be better. Um, so yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, you mentioned tires earlier and uh, specifically tire pressure. And that is, uh, kind of one of the things I also have a, <laughs> you know, I think anyone who's into these marginal gains, you know, tires are one of the the best things because obviously, you know, they're kind of, well, maybe not anymore, but they were relatively cheap and they're something you can kind of swap relatively easy now that we're thankfully out of the kind of tubular era. Um, but uh, for the, you know, for kind of like listeners who, you know, may, maybe uh, you know, just just starting out in cycling or something, what, why are kind of, you know, good tires so important and kind of like, what are the differences uh, that we can expect between, you know, a good and, and a bad you know, say, say, say a road tire, for example. Hmm. Yeah, th- this one's I mean, just beyond huge. And I think really does highlight the, the challenge that we as humans have with our, the limits of our perception. Um, you know, just like with the, 
it, can you really feel the difference between this chain loop and that chain loop? Probably not. Uh, people struggle to feel the difference between between tires, even when the differences are quite large. And and um, you know, one of the challenges there is that you know we humans are really bad at, at perceiving speed. You know, I think our eyes are probably set a little too close together, um, <laughs> and and our brains you know process it at a rate that we're really not effective at, at processing speed. And, you know, I think in one of uh, our marginal gains podcasts, we talked about, you know, some studies done of like, like this is why people get hit by trains, right? Like they look and they see the train coming and it's hard for them to process how quickly it's moving. Um, you know, it, it, and I think likewise, when we're riding, it's hard, you know, is this 25 K an hour or 26 K an hour you, without looking at something it, you really can't tell that very accurately. And so, our brains use proxies uh, for speed sense. And so things like wind noise um, becomes a proxy for speed. So, you know, you, you might feel like you're going uh, faster with a little bit of a headwind than a tailwind. Um, But the big one is we use vibration uh, as a, as a proxy for speed. So the, the higher the frequency, the vibration, the faster we feel like we're going. And of course the problem with this is it biases us towards things like higher tire pressure, which make more vibrations come through. It biases us oftentimes towards um, stiffer casing tires or, or, or tires with lower quality rubber compounds because they'll transfer more uh, vibration through to the rider. And so, you know, if you, if you think back 20 years, you know, it was a, a really cool thing to, you know, go get some Tufo tubular tires and pump them to 160 and, you know, feel like you're flying. And of course, now that we have power meters and wind sensor data and all these other things, you realize like, oh, wow, you're actually going slower on more watts on, on that compared to a, a supple tire. So, so the, the optimal word for, for tire selection is supple. Um, and what that really means is you want the lowest amount of damping uh, in the tire, or, or as the engineers, we would call it hysteresis. Um, you want a tire that's super flexible and pliable, and that will give you sort of the truest uh, spring rate relative to the air pressure that you're putting in the tire. Um, you know, if you think of it like a suspension fork, uh, you know, the air pressure controls the spring rate and the tire construction controls the damping. Uh, and in the case of efficiency, comfort, uh, and even handling, you want as little damping as possible in the tire because you want that tire to be able to respond as quickly as possible to changes in road surface. Um, and so the, the, you know, what is the benefit of this? Well, the benefit is, you know, faster rolling. So you're, you're losing less watts to or fewer watts to heat, uh, where the tire meets the road. Um, you actually improve grip, uh, and grip consistency and you improve comfort. Um, and uh, again, this radio, so we don't, have, I can't use a graph. <laughs> I love to use graphs, but, um, y- you end up with this thing. There's, there's a difference, uh, what we would call, uh, uh, dynamic spring rate versus static spring rate. And, you know, I think for years, the model people used for tires was the static spring rate. You know, you, you push it in and, and measure, oh, it's, you know, a hundred newtons per millimeter. Okay. That's the spring rate. Well, what ends up happening, uh, in a dynamic situation, particularly at high frequency is the tire isn't able to rebound as quickly as the inputs are coming from the road surface. And so, um, if, if you've ever ridden washboard on a mountain bike and experienced the packing of a suspension fork, right, where it can't recover and it just keeps like packing down, um, getting stiffer and stiffer, that, that happens to tires, particularly cheaper ones. 
um, in high frequency circumstances. And so that's where, you know, you actually, uh, cheap tires actually transmit more vibration, uh, lose more energy and ride more harshly than supple tires, even at the same pressure because of this, uh, dynamic versus static, uh, friction thing. So, you know, as I always tell people, you know, the tire is literally the only thing connecting you to the road. It is the only thing that's transmitting all of the forces. Like it's doing all the physics basically, right? <laughs> you know, you want, you, you know, you traction, cornering, um, acceleration, deceleration, all of that has to go through that tire. Um, and so, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna start spending money somewhere, uh, to improve your experience, man, tires are absolutely the best place, the best bang for your buck by far. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think, um, you know, if you're into kind of like racing or something like that, I think one of the, you know, I mean, maybe if you're running tubeless tires, this would be a bit more of a hassle. But if you, you know, optimizing your tire choice for uh, a given race is is a really nice thing to do. And if you've got, if you can have a few set of tires, you know, like it, you know, it's not, it's not very often that the kind of races in this country in the UK call for VeloFlex records. But if you're, <laughs> if you're running, if you're doing a race on a really nice, freshly laid road surface, you know, you can afford to use the fastest tires possible. Uh, you know, and to sort of take that risk of, you know, maybe you'll hit a, have a puncture if you're unfortunate enough to hit some glass. But, but generally, you know, I like I, I, I like to run sort of GP Continental GP five thousands, and you know, obviously there are lots of good options. If you, you know, have plenty of recommendations on BikeRadar.com, if you're looking for some. But, um, but I, I completely agree. They're they're such a, a good place to um to to spend money on because you know, they're relatively easy to change and not too expensive. You know, if you want to change your, uh, you know, your bike frame, for example, that's, that's right. not a, that's not an easy, that's not an easy option. And, um, yeah, so that I, I completely agree with that. But, um, in terms of, and one thing I wanted to pick your brains about was in terms of, you know, the, the kind of modern trend for tires now, uh, obviously, as well as, you know, the, the kind of increasing availability of data from, you know, I, I know you, Silka have, have done a lot of, you know, some testing and obviously Tom Ann, how have done his roller testing and bicycle rolling resistance.com and wheel energy and all of these people have to have testing and there's kind of the trend from the industry is towards you know wider is 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 kind of faster um you know with my kind of time trialist hat on i i kind of wonder if that's like a little bit too simplistic right and you know where do, where do you sit on the kind of you know so so for you know for, if when I talked to you know, brands, they were telling me that you know, time trialers at the, at the tour this year were going to be running 28s. Um, and I guess if you've got a wheel optimized for that in terms, you know, aerodynamically, then maybe that kind of is the fastest option. But uh, you know, I'm, we're all having to kind of, even for me, who's you know works in a in a tech, like I'm still kind of like, oh, but I thought the narrower tire would be more aero. But blah blah blah, you know, I'm, you know. So maybe I'm completely, I'm still, I don't even get it. Maybe. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, th this is a good one. I I think <laughs> it's, it's such a complicated one. I, I think when whenever you have some technological innovation, and you know, I like to think of this as is sort of a change in the conventional wisdom, right? And what is the conventional wisdom is sort of a a mental model that we all agree upon, right? Or, or mostly all agree upon or believe in. And what's happening right now, and I, and I think, you know, we, we really started this at the end of my zip tenure, and then we really drove it hard early in Silka, but this move towards wire tighter tires, which can be faster on some circumstances and, uh, or, or some surfaces. And then with those wider tires, pressures come down um, to 
to achieve the optimal spring rate. And then, of course, as surfaces get rougher, pressures need to come down more. Um, so you have the optimal spring rate um, so that you're not tripping into this, what, what we call the impedance effects of tires, right? Where, you know, it, it, up to a certain pressure, rolling resistance is dominated by tire casing and rubber losses, the hysteresis. And then above a certain pressure, it starts to become dominated by uh, the bouncing and shaking and vibration of the, the human on top. Um, and so we, we've collected, I mean, thousands and thousands of data points. I think at last check, the Silca tire pressure calculator is now running well over 5,000 real world field test data points um, to try to you know, pick an optimal pressure for your situation. Um, and the thing that I think is hard about this is, you know, our, our brains were, were wired, particularly when we're building these mental models, we're wired to think in terms of like maximize and minimize, which, which is, I think, you know, why the whole like weight weaning thing just continues to be so alluring to so many people, right? It's just so straightforward. You know, what's the enemy weight? What are we going to do with it? We're going to minimize it. And so it's so easy to just sit there and just tick away. Oh, I'm going to do this. And that bar tape is five grams lighter. And this crank is 10 grams, you know, and, and you can just drive in that direction very clearly um, with that model. You know, drag is the same thing, right? What, what's the enemy drag? Okay. We're going to all about drag and, and go in that direction. Now, the reality, of course, is, is a lot more complicated, and that's that most of these problems, when we really break them down, are optimization problems. And, and our brains don't like optimization because it's ugly and it's full of, like, trade-offs and, you know, things where, like, you, you get stuck in these corners, you know, of like, oh, well, I really want to make that lighter, but it's so much less arrow. And, and it's hard. And, and, you know, I think brands struggle to message optimization because it, it's not simple. Um, you know, the, the, the media, <clears throat> excuse me, struggles to, um, really explain optimization because it's ugly and hard. Um, you know, and I, I think the best kind of example I always use here is like politics, right? It's, you look at, you know, the people love political figures that just make stuff sound simple, you know, like, you know, what's the problem? That, that guy's the problem. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and, you know, that's just not how reality works. And, but that's how we, we want to, I don't know, think, right. Cause that, that's yeah. how we're wired. We will. Yeah. We want easy then, answers, don't we? Yeah. And, and then on top of that, you know, I, we talk a lot on our podcast about, you know, these sort of, um, both biases, but also just the ways that our brains are wired that we really trip up over certain, um, in, in certain areas. So, you know, big ones we, I like to talk about are like asymmetry, right? We humans love symmetry. We think symmetrically, we assume symmetry and it's just not true. Um, in a lot of these cases. And so, you know, you, you might be assuming a, a problem has a cement, you know, the, the tire rolling resistance is a big one. You know, okay. If there's a peak minimum rolling resistance occurs at an optimal pressure, um, you know, if we're plus minus five PSI of that, we're probably fine, except there's a strong asymmetry in that relationship where five PSI too high is much worse than five PSI too low. Um, just because of the, the, the way the science works. And, and so it's, you know, we kind of have to relearn things. And, and this is where, you know, aerodynamics, I think took so long for people to get on board with, you know, I've spent 25 years of my life preaching arrow. And one of the big challenges with arrow is that it's, um, it's nonlinear. 
and, and our brains don't think nonlinear, <laughs> right? So it's the, you know, and I, I always kind of uh, like to use the, the golf bet, betting problem uh, for this one that, you know, if you and I are going to play some golf, right? I'm going to bet you $2 on the first hole, and we're going to double that on every hole. How much are we playing for on the 18th hole? Yeah, I've heard this one, and I've can't, I can't remember the answer, but it gets ludicrous. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's great, right? And and so, yeah. but your brain, you know, if we think through, I mean, I, you know, I use this example all the time. It's still hard for me to wrap my brain around. But you think, oh, two, then four, then eight, then sixteen, right? And you, but you know, by the eighteenth hole, that's two to the eighteen. That's like two hundred and sixty-eight thousand dollars. <laughs> um, that's essentially what's happening when we start talking about aerodynamic situations, right? Like over these finite little ranges, it feels linear or it seems linear, but you just have to get a little bit past that. And that curve is turning upwards and upwards. Um, and, and you can really, you know, get bitten by, by the nonlinearities. And, um, you know, I have to say, I've, I've used this to my extreme advantage in my career in a bunch of these areas with some of the optimizations that we've done for athletes at, you know, Roubaix and the tour and the Olympics and all these things. Um, you know, it, it, it really pays to, to play to the science. So, so having said all that back to your question, um, <laughs> you know, yes, I think we are, we're in this swinging pendulum kind of about the story and the brands and to some extent the the media are doing everyone a disservice with their simplification here you know wider is faster okay wider is not faster <laughs> you know as i as i tell all my athletes faster is faster <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with that is to know what's faster we actually have to really know the situation right let's let's get our math on it and detail it so you know in your time trial situation um you know, is the wider tire faster? I'm going to start with, you know, what tire? Because not the belief of wider is faster in a lot of cases comes from data where you see, oh, the the 28 millimeter GP5000 has a slightly ro lower rolling resistance than the 25 millimeter GP5000. But when you actually look at what's happening, that that's largely because of the construction differences between those tires. And the 28 and the 30 share a similar tread width. And so the 30 and the 28 are almost identical rolling resistance in that particular model of tire. Um, and so, you know, you might think, oh, if 28 is faster than 25, then 30 is faster than 28. And in this case, it's not true. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is, that's, that's kind of the logical thing, right? You know, it trips you up and you think, well, you know, if 28 is better, then maybe we should all be riding fat bikes for time trials, right? But of right. course that would be <laughs> ridiculous and we're not going to do it. We know that would be slower. So there is obviously a nuance to it. And, uh, uh, you know, you see a lot of the thing, well, you know, at, if we test it at 90 PSI, you know, the 28 is faster than the 25, but of course, then you're coming back to casing tension and obviously you have to run the yeah, wider exactly. tire lower. And so, like you say, it's very nuanced. And I suppose yeah, I've told you this time trial, but I guess, you know, I, you, I haven't told you what the road surface is like, you know, maybe my local council has gone out and chip sealed it, put a load of gravel right, down and right, there's now, right. a, there's now a gravel section on my time trial course. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, if you model the, the course and say, Oh wow, the road surface is so bad that your speeds are going to be lower. Well, you know, because of that nonlinearity, the arrow loss of that 28 probably isn't offsetting, isn't enough to um, offset the CRR benefit, right? But yeah, if it's a super smooth road and you're going to be, you know, averaging 50K an hour, 
well, then that wider tire yeah, is that, that won't be a time is, trial. Is, is definitely not what you want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's before we even get into what wheels are you riding? What are they yeah. optimized for? You know, what's your frame? How narrow is your fork? Um, there's just it's really hard. And and the real answer for faster is faster is you know we should go to the wind tunnel and we should <laughs> do some tire testing. Um, and of course, that's not possible for everybody. So you know, my my goal in all this is to really unfortunately is to kind of, you know, de-simplify <laughs> the thing and say, Hey, don't, don't get stuck in someone else's mental model of this, right? You know, don't, don't get trapped by this model that's been built by, you know, these five companies are marketing in this way. I mean, really peel it back, think for a minute and, and really think to yourself, Hey, th- this is a lot more complex than that. So what, wh- what am I missing? Or, or what are, what are they omitting to simplify this that that could be important? Um, you know, I, my, my goal is to help people think differently, and and hopefully in doing so, think a little bit better. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I, and I, you know, I think certainly from as, as I said earlier, listening to kind of your podcast, uh, you know, there's always challenging kind of new ideas being thrown out, and um, you know, I, I think the, as you say, the kind of worst thing you can do is is to kind of take someone else's model for what works for them and and you know necessarily think that that is going to work for you as well and obviously it might work with some things but um you know perhaps not everything so as you say it's just worth kind of thinking about i suppose your own personal requirements and and goals and situation but um you mentioned wheels there and obviously wheels is a topic uh i wanted to talk about um given your time at zip but um obviously you know carbon air and carbon wheel carbon wheels are kind of uh ubiquitous now and you know rims are getting kind of uh, wider both internally and externally and obviously zip you know along with the likes of uh head were kind of a uh, a pioneer of this and I, you know i suppose it's a kind of similar question to the tires thing you know w- you know why why are rims getting you know wider blunter and that sort of thing because I, I think it, again it kind of goes against that kind of mental model of we assume that sharp edges are faster right um you know mm. narrow things things with a small frontal area are fast right but it, it, i guess you know obviously some people think that's not the case <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know i think the, the the rim and tire width thing is sort of a a chicken and egg situation right you know when when i you know started at zip in 99 you know, we were racing on 19s and 20s. Um, 21s were wide, right? Nobody would time trial on a 21. That was <laughs> oof, that's just crazy. Uh, and then, you know, we we saw that change coming. And, and you know, for me, it was I was at the the wind tunnel in I think 0, 02 with Johan Bernil and Lance Armstrong and that whole postal crew and um, watched them. They were testing. Lance's bikes with a 19 millimeter continental, uh, TT tire on the head three spoke. And at lunch, Johan was saying that he was really going to move the entire team to 23s, um, because they were just having so many flats and problems with the 21s. And, you know, I said, well, are you time trialing on the 23s? Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's just safer. A flat in a time trial could cost us everything. And said, well, then you should really be testing with a 23 because that i know that wheel doesn't work with a 23 um and it was a real moment right of, of oh if if the tires are going to get wider the wheels are going to have to to change because the, the current wheels i mean the, the zip wheels of that era included they did not work with wide tires um 
and so we we had some understanding of why you needed to at least match rim width to tire width. Um, and then really 03 into 04, we, we did a ton of tunnel testing, uh, essentially proving that the rim had to be not just equal to the tire, but wider. Um, and I think that the mental model for that makes a lot of sense. If you think in terms of yaw, you know, if the, if the wind is coming from any angle other than just head on, the tire being wider allows the wind to kind of stick down on the leeward side uh, of that rim. And, and that's where this whole like rule of 105 thing came from that. I don't know. It seems like a lot of people know me for that. For that, yeah. You know, the idea is that the, the <laughs> I think I've quoted be, it a few times on yeah, site. The, I, and it's funny. I, I think now, you know, clearly you could see my bias towards. You know, I was a wheel engineer, so it's the wheel needs to be one hundred and five percent the width of the tire. I, I think if I had it to do over again, I would, I would say that the tire should be 95% of the rim. Width. <laughs> well, what, yeah, what's but, nice about uh, that, Josh, is it's a really simple way of it. You know, we can just stick to rule of one Oh five and be done with it forever. And we never yeah. have to think about it again. It's one, as you said, yeah. it's one of the simple answers. <laughs> it's a politician's yeah, it, simple answer. Right. Right. And so, yeah. And so, you know, around the edges and at the margins, it, um, it, it's probably not a hundred percent correct. Right. But it's, easy to remember it generally holds true um it, it it yeah it's lasted 20 something years now so i'll i'll take it but um but yeah so i think you know we knew wider tires handled rough roads better the real advantage of a wide tire if you think of it technically is you think of this rolling resistance curve right where you have this sort of downward um you have coefficient of rolling resistance falling as pressure increases, but it's falling asymptotically, you know, it's approaching some like theoretical limit. And, you know, that's what you get with roller testing. And that's what all of us believed kind of up until 10 years ago, right? That, oh, the higher pressures were faster because of this, you know, relationship that we see in roller testing. And of course, in the real world, what happens is you eventually hit a pressure that we've, we've labeled or Tom Anhalt labeled the breakpoint pressure and that's the pressure where the apparent crr starts to climb um and that happens because you're now shaking the rider too much and essentially you're lifting the bike over all the bumps you know instead of the center of gravity of the bike remaining at a given height and the tires absorbing all that movement you're now you know i would say that the ground is sort of bench pressing the the cyclist hundreds of times per minute um you know nothing about that seems very efficient and and so you have this break point where rolling resistance starts to climb and then everything past that we call impedance and the impedance losses are so that asymmetry we talked about impedance losses are steeper than the crr gains on the other side of the curve the challenge is that you know and, and this we really solidified this with the the 303 roubaix wheel that we developed in 2008 through 2010 the thing that really hit us was that the tire needs to be able to absorb the biggest bump, you know, it, it, the biggest cobble, whatever it is, um, below that break point, right? It below that impedance zone. And, you know, if you've got a 21 millimeter tire, you probably have 19 millimeters of, of vertical clearance between the rim edge and the earth <laughs> and the pavement. And, you know, if you're hitting cobbles that are bigger than that, you are going to have to run air pressures that are too high, right? You're, you're always running your air pressure in that impedance zone to prevent 
failing that wheel. And so the advantage of big tires is that you can run a softer spring rate, uh, essentially, you know, to the left of that, that break point pressure, um, it, it, without the risk of rim damage. And so, you know, I think when we think about why, uh, big tires are faster on these rough roads, it's really that they're allowing you to run the proper pressure. Um, whereas a tire too narrow is, is likely forcing you to run, uh, out in that impedance zone from a, a Roubaix perspective, you know, think about like, what is this worth? Um, it, it's worth somewhere on the order of 20 to 25 Watts to, to go from like a 24 millimeter to a 30 millimeter tire, um, that you can run at the optimal pressure. I mean, that, that's a huge amount. You know, yeah, I, it's I, enormous. I, yeah. I, 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 I get a lot of crap from my, my friends at ceramic speed. Cause I, I like to use uh, oversized pulley systems as like a unit of measurement, but you know, <laughs> I would say like, you know, that's, that, that's like, you know, 12 or 13 yeah. oversized pulley systems worth of savings just by running the right tire size at the right pressure. That that's huge. Right. And, and, for quite, and for quite a lot less money. Too. <laughs> of, yeah. All for a cost of, of the two tires. Yeah. Um, and so I think once that realization hit us, the wheels had to change, right? The wheels had to move forward because we could see the future um, with the tires. Now, I, I think, you know, we are coming probably towards the end of that evolution because, you know, there's really 30 to 32 is pretty optimal for a Roubaix type surface. Um, there's really no, there's no real benefit to going to say a 35 or a 37 or a 30, you know, eight or whatever, um why why is that is that just because the the bumps are not big enough exactly exactly the, the bumps are at a size uh, really other than the arnberg forest is probably the one place where maybe a 35 would would be better but for the rest of the course you can run the 30 to 32 depending on rider weight at at the optimal breakpoint uh pressure or just left of the breakpoint pressure and you're doing that that's giving you the optimal coefficient of rolling resistance and, and, and it's limiting your arrow losses, right? Cause we, you know, we can't forget, I mean, they, they are going very fast. <laughs> this year's was the, the <laughs> fastest ever, I believe uh, something, something like 45 plus kilometers an hour for six hours yeah. over the cobbles. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you know, to go out and try and ride 45 kilometers an hour on your, on your bike just for five minutes is hard enough on a road bike, let alone a time <laughs> trial bike. So yeah, I mean, obviously you talked about tire pressure there and, and you know, you, you did mention briefly the, uh, the Silka tire pressure calculator and, um, I did just make a mental note that I wanted to give a shout out to that. Cause that, that's actually what I use to, um, optimize my tire pressures. And I think it's a really good resource. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit more about it? I know because it's backed up by kind of as you, as you kind of alluded to earlier, kind of like you know a, a big big data set. Yeah, I think what what makes our calculator really different, you know, most really all the calculators out there are based on um, something called the 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 static drop, right, or the tire drop uh, for a certain weight. And that goes way back, you know, 40, 50 years that you wanted this quote unquote 15% tire drop was considered to be optimal when, when this was studied years ago. And, uh, that, that's to say, you know, a 23 millimeter tire probably puts you 20 millimeters over the road because uh, of the way the tire geometries work. And so, you know, when you put weight on that tire, you want 
that to drop by 15%. And so there's some charts that have floated around forever. And I mean, there's at least 20 companies, brands that I can think of who've built calculators around that. The, the problem with that is that it assumes um, the static spring rate, right? Or it's only considering static spring rate. And the other thing that's tricky with that one is it's static spring rate for like a given weight distribution. You know, typically it, it's, you know, rider on the hoods. And so as we really start to look at this, you know, the first thing that becomes obvious is, oh, well, you know, when a rider gets into an aggressive position, the weight bias is more forward. Um, when a rider is going downhill, the weight bias is much more forward. When a rider is braking, the weight bias is much more forward. So we actually start to understand that, you know, we, we need more front air pressure than this 15% drop is predicting for us because th the times you need it most or it's most important, uh, those calculators are giving you way too low of a front number. So we started using the, the Chung method uh, developed by Robert Chung. It's also known as virtual elevation. It's a really beautiful mathematical technique that you can use uh, essentially riding a loop with a power meter, and, and we've added wind sensors and some other things to it. But you, you can actually back into really accurate uh, rolling resistance and uh, aer aerodrag or, or CRR and CDA um, values using this technique. And so, gosh, starting, I mean, all the way back at Saxo Bank, we were using Chung to look at CRR on the cobbles at Roubaix and at Flanders and, and trying to understand different surfaces. And, and, you know, we did it on track surfaces for multiple hour record attempts. And, and what I realized a couple of years ago was, wow, I, you know, over whatever, 10 plus years of doing this, I, I had amassed this pretty remarkable data set, you know, where we had, you know, Peter Sagan riding the Arenberg forest, you know, eight times, at, you know, at four different air pressures on two different tire sizes. And in there, we know his, his mass, his front rear, rear weight distribution, and we know what the optimal pressure became. And so we had this idea to just uh, essentially load all of that data um, into one set and then curve fit it in a way that we could sort of interpolate the missing points, right? So the, the cool thing about the calculator is like, you know, if you, if you know Peter's weight and weight distribution and tire size, and you plug it in there and you say cobbles, you will get the pressure that he won Roubaix on, <laughs> right? It, now, if you're a little heavier than that, or your tire is a slight different size, then there's an algorithm in there that's interpolating based on, you know, say the next heavier rider that we, you know, studied on the same surface. Um, it, it's just a really different way of, of, looking at things, I, I think. And, and, you know, honestly, I, I feel a little bit silly. I think, I think I, we built that data set for like seven years before ever thinking that it could be useful for, you know, anything other than what we were using it for. But, uh, but, but it's been really exciting, uh, you know, to hear the, the feedback and, and kind of in a little bit of, of irony, you know, I, I travel, I do the Flanders Roubaix week every single year, uh, typically for, I don't know, three to five teams and, and a lot of individual athletes for other events through the year. And, and in a way, particularly through the pandemic, you know, we sort of cost ourselves business there because a lot of those teams are like, Oh, travel is hard. And so we're just going to, we'll just use the online calculator. <laughs> and so, um, you know, so, so we, we, we may have been too clever and kind of put ourselves out of business a little bit in terms of, uh, of doing, you know, on-site optimization, but, but 
it, it's just been it, it's been a really remarkable tool that uh, the response has been uh, really fabulous. So glad glad to hear you're enjoying it as well. Yeah, it's 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 a really great resource, and um, I would definitely recommend you know if if you haven't kind of looked at your tire pressures recently, uh, you know going to um, obviously the, the Silka tire pressure calculator and just kind of you know pulling in the numbers, playing with the surfaces, and you know seeing what you what you get because you know it might it might surprise you. And you know I'm a pretty lightweight guy. I, I you know I kind of weigh mid sixties. I run 28s, you know, I'm riding like 65 PSI these days, you know, maybe, maybe even lower. And it, it you know, I, I when I started cycling sort of 10 years ago or whatever, I was riding gator skins, 23 mils, 110 PSI, <laughs> you know, you get as much as your track pump in there. And, and so like, you know, things have come a long way in a really short uh, space of time. So if you, if that isn't something you've looked at recently, that is, uh, that is a huge potential gain. And as, as Josh kind of alluded to earlier, not just in terms of kind of like rolling resistance, but also just in terms of comfort. Yeah, it, it, I, w- I would say that it, the, the best part of tire optimization for me is that it's one of the few optimizations that doesn't have negative trade-offs, right? I mean, it, it's one of the few things where you can say, okay, when you get the right pressure, you are going to go faster. You're going to be more comfortable. You're going to have better grip. <laughs> right? There's, there's no like other shoe that drops down, <laughs> you know, to kick you. It, it you really, if, if, when you get that right, it's heaven. Uh, yeah, cool. Well, yeah, as I said, recommend everyone like check that out and, and just give it a try. And, and, you, you know, just because you hear that Geraint Thomas is still running 110 PSI at the tour, doesn't mean you should do it. So <laughs> well worth looking that up. Um, obviously we talked a little bit about aerodynamics, um, so far on this podcast and 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 i know that as you say kind of when you were developing area wheels and you know you just talked about spending time in the wind tunnel um yeah i think as as you say aerodynamics is non-linear so in in kind of if you if you really want to go fast and it is kind of the big problem but um you know, ev- everyone's into aerodynamics recently and you mentioned uh you know weight weenieism earlier and, and obviously some of the feedback we get a lot of the time on bike radar is, is, you know, people love lightweight stuff because obviously, you know, it's, it's something that if I have a set of kitchen scales at home, I can weigh the difference between the, the steel bolt and the titanium bolt. Right. And so you can see where your money's gone, but if X brand says, you know, every brand says, you know, this is 10% faster, uh, you know, every single generation. And, um, and I think there's a kind of a concern that um, you know the aerodynamic claims are almost too good to be true, um, but you know my opinion is that it is the big problem because, <laughs> as you say, it's a non-linear problem, and you know studies have shown that eighty percent of the riders caused by the drag. So, you know why why do you think kind of people sometimes get rubbed up the wrong way by kind of aerodynamics versus versus weight? Oh, I I, I think it's the problem we've had from the beginning of zip you know, you, you can't really feel it. Um, it, you know, weight is so obvious, right? You, you can pick up two things. You can generally tell which one is lighter. Um, you can put it on the kitchen scale, right? We have easy, cheap tools for measuring it. It's very straightforward. And I think you have, again, this mental model of, you know, why, why does weight help you? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's less, you don't have to take it up the hill, right? I mean, you can just do a simple, uh, energy calculation and, and, you know, it, it, it's super obvious. 
you know, arrow is much harder. You can't feel it. Um, it. It's affected by, you know, wind speed and not ground speed. Right. So I think that that's a big thing for people. Um, and I think, you know, we, we just don't have good tools. It, it's coming, but we just don't have great tools to measure it in a way that people can, can sense straight away. And so, um, you know, the, the biggest tool for me and, and certainly in my career, I mean, the, the thing that enabled arrow to happen at the level it's happened is the power meter, you know, before the power meter, I mean, I, you know, I think I spent two years talking with literally every single, you know, European team director uh, about aero wheels and not one of them would even take a meeting. And uh, it was Bjorn Reese was the first one who would actually take the meeting with us. And he had been on the SRM for a couple of years, really understood power. And when you put him on different wheels back to back, you could see the speed differential at a given power in the data clear as day. And he was really the first one to say, Oh, I, I get this, <laughs> you know, I, I see this. Um, cause I think a, a lot too, up until that point, you had a lot of people doing things that seemed arrow or looked arrow. I mean, you, you know, I'm a huge fan of the, the crazy super bikes of the nineties, but the reality is, you know, other other than the Lotus and the Zip Bike and maybe one or two others, I mean, most all of them were just designed to look cool and, you know, by people who had no idea what they were doing and and with no development or testing of any type behind them. And so, you know, I think it, you know, I won't name names, but there there are definite instances of bikes that looked super cool and fast and exotic that were no faster than the bike they were replacing. And so, you know, I think it, it became easy for people to start discounting arrow, you know, oh, well, if, if arrow is so much faster, why aren't the riders going any faster? Um, you know, obviously the, the, the one that changed everybody's mind, uh, was Le Mans 89, uh, Tour de France, you know, the, the Champs-Élysées time trial, um, where, you know, he, he just did an absolutely unimaginable performance, um, because he used arrow bars and Fignon didn't. And, you know, it's clear as day in the data. I mean, you, you put a guy in, or a person in bullhorns and you put them on the clip-ons of that era and the math is right there. I mean, you, you go fast enough to win that race. That started the change, but again, it, it, people were doing what they thought was arrow and not what they knew or could prove was arrow. And, and as a result, some of that worked and some of it didn't. And so that it, adoption was slow for that reason. I mean, I, I think aero sensors are the next, uh, probably the next power meter in my mind. And that's going to be the thing that's really going to allow people to see some of the subtle differences. And, you know, the other way I like to argue to look at, at things too is, uh, you know, this is all marginal gains, right? He, you know, if, to make it not marginal gains, you take, you know, uh, uh, you know, Cervelo S5 road bike of today and put a power meter on it and take a, you know, steel, you know, uh, you know the, the bike behind me, right? The, uh, I've got a Le Mans TVT from the uh, 1990 tour in, in my collection. And, and, you know, we, we put two riders on those with power meters and we go out and we test them and, and 
the difference from then to now is absolutely massive. The challenge I think we we have for a lot of people is this sort of like relativism that's happening. Well, you know, oh, well, this this year's S five doesn't seem much faster than the S five of two years ago. Well, yeah, that's because the S five of two years ago was a bloody fast bike. Um, you know, and we're, and we're now at yeah. the place where the, the, the marginal gains are becoming even more marginal, right? Because the, the level of optimization, um, is becoming so high, but I do think when you look at it on aggregate and, and, you know, you referenced the, the Paris-Roubaix record speed this year, you know, you, you are seeing from a, a, a very almost like Moneyball. Uh, if you're familiar with that book or the movie, yes, but a, a very money it. ball. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're seeing a very money ball sense of, of things that, you know, what happens when every rider on every team is arrow optimized and, and has some proper understanding of tires and pressure, the whole Peloton goes faster um, in a notable way. And, and I think that's one of the things that also took, took years, you know, you, you might have, you know, Fabian Cancelar on 808s, you know, being able to hold off an entire Peloton for a kilometer at the tour. I mean, that, that was an amazing ride and you could do the math on that and show that worked, but on the aggregate, they weren't all going faster because two thirds of the Peloton was on old tech. Um, you know, but over time as that's changed and the whole Peloton has modernized, you know, they're all now wearing speed suits and the proper helmets and the frames are more arrow and all the wheels are arrow wheels. Um, you know, so now we're at a place where like the nuances between them, oh, you know, this team has a bike that's 1% faster than that team or, but you know, it, it's, uh, you know, think back to like our days at CSC. I mean, we, those guys were on a bike that was eight, 10% faster than almost anyone else. And, and again, from a money ball sense, you look at, you know, we took this team that had an entire team budget of well below Lance Armstrong's salary and, <laughs> and drove that team to the number one team because you are now doing things where the average, you know, finishing place of the racers in a race was going up a couple of positions, right? You know, it wasn't like you showed up with this tech and they won all the races. Cause I, and I think that's what people want to say, Oh, well, if this yeah, is so much better, exactly. they would, they would win everything. Well, no, we're, you know, it's, it, it's much more of a numbers game. It's like, um, you know, it's like counting cards, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to win. It's just bending the odds in your favor. Uh, you know, yeah. Comparatively. I think people think it's kind of like Formula One, right? If you have the best bike, then you're going to win. And, it, it, you know, as you say, you know, they're called marginal gains for a reason. And obviously because they're small. And I know, like, I think people got a bit caught up in the kind of team sky era because obviously you know that whole i mean it was the, it was the media really we made a big thing about the kind of aggregation of marginal gains mm-hmm. um but it is you know it is a thing and i i know if, you know from my local club time trial like i'm far from the best athlete um but because i have access to you know uh some really nice skin suits you know good tires and <laughs> things like that like i i can compete with people who put out you know 25% more power than me, <laughs> you know, um, totally true. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it just wouldn't be possible. Um, and obviously, you know, I don't tell those people because otherwise they'll go away, you know, <laughs> optimize themselves and then I'll never, I'll never beat them again. But, but I think you're completely right. And, you know, like you say, you know, all of the pro peloton are wearing speed suits these days. And, and that, 
you know wasn't a thing you know like aero aero socks and obviously still can make you guys, you guys make your own aero socks to deal with the problem because they always fall down um the yeah. kind of skin suit material ones but um but you know those you know i think when um you know, dan bigham who's you know going for the ucir record uh, later this week was one of the first people to kind of popularize aero socks along you know obviously with a few other things he's been very influential but um you know people people kind of genuinely laughed at that stuff and now, you know, you'd, if, you, if you're going in the breakaway and you're not wearing aero socks, I think most people sort of go, well, he's probably not the person going to win today. And, <laughs> the, you know, the, <laughs> the kind of the, the marker has moved. And I think, as, as you said, every, everyone is just so much more optimized. And it really is that kind of money ball effect of, you know, what happens when, I, you know, I think this year's Tour de France was the fastest ever as well. And, you know, anyone who watched the racing would have seen that the kind of, the racing was just relentless in, in terms of, you know, some of the stages, the flat stages, the speeds there, you know, clipping along on the flat at 65, 70 kilometers an hour. Like you don't do that on, even with the best athletes in the world, you don't do that on raw grunt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, I think it's, it, it's fun for me to see all of this, you know, kind of solidifying Now, Of course, the, the challenge being, you know, it, it is, uh, as we used the word earlier, it's an asymptote, right? There's just, you know, we, we, the, the gains we're making now are, incrementally ever smaller you know we've we've eaten all the low-hanging fruit <laughs> and, and now we're getting into the really like you know tiny nuances of things um but but it is cool to see you know for me uh, over the course of my career to look back and think wow we we really we really changed some things you know in in, in some big fundamental ways and it feels like now we we really are seeing the results of that you know these higher average speeds that the, the time trial speeds, I mean, that, and, and when you, you know, because a lot of the, the power data is public, when you look at the power data, um, you can see that it's, it's not because of, you know, it, it, it's not like the, the Armstrong era, right? I mean, I remember working with him, you know, the, one of the first times we were ever in the wind tunnel and so the one hour normalized power of 510 Watts, <laughs> I remember looking at one of the one of the other engineers and being like, five ten? Seriously? And he just looked at me, he's like, Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> like like mother of God, like that's okay, five you know, and you you run the numbers and you know, the speeds the speeds fit, five ten. Um it's amazing to see what the guys are doing today and and they're not doing five hundred ten watts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not not even close. Um, no, well, which is great. I, you know, yeah. I, I think it really it, it shows that there are other there are other ways of achieving the same goal. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of mentioned there, you know, maybe we're kind of peaking in some of these areas. I mean, is there anything that could kind of you know move the goalposts again? And I think you know, from a kind of time trialist perspective, for example, I, I think you look at you know, if I was a, a bike manufacturer. Making a, a UCI legal time trial bike, for example, seems like a real hassle because obviously it takes a lot of development in order to make a good time trial bike because, you know, it takes a lot of development to make anything well. And uh, But the kind of commercial market for those things, you know, just isn't really there now that triathlon mm -hmm. has kind of moved on so much. And um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that kind of, that kind of you know, UCI rules and you know are they too restrictive and and it, and if the rules were to, you know to to be more like we see in triathlon you know do do you expect 
that that would you know move the goalposts for sort of potential for more significant gains or is it the case that you know we're kind of we're getting to that point where you know UCI even UCI legal frames are pretty well optimized just in general oh, I mean a, a change in the rules would certainly be a lot more fun um you know like if you if if I could get rid of the rules I I, I certainly would because I think the innovation you would see would be pretty eye-opening I mean a, a data point I like to give is you know you look at the fastest TT bikes at the tour or, or in the world tour today are roughly equivalent to a zip 3001. If you put a modern handlebar and wheels on it. Um, and you know, the, the final zip 3001, I think was built in like 1996. <laughs> so, so I mean, in a, in a sense, we, we changed the rules to kill the super bikes and we have spent, uh, you know, 30 years, give or take, um, catching back up to about equal. So I, I think if you, if you could drop the rules today, you know, where we end up 30 years from now, I think would be a, a very different place. Now, having said that, you know, there are just certain limitations, <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the, the bikes now are very, very fast. And, um, you know, are we going to make them, 10% better, 15% better. I think that's probably likely, but it's 10 or 15% improvement on a very, very good number. <laughs> right. So I think it, again, it's an asymptote. I mean, there, there are limits, um, but man, we, there would just be so many more options uh, if the rules were to go away. I, I think the bikes of today, as we test them, and I actually just did a bunch of wind tunnel earlier this year for one of the teams Um they're really all converging on pretty similar numbers and pretty similar solutions. Um, when you look at them, yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a bummer because I think they're all starting to really look the same. Yeah. Um, it's a comment but, we get. But it is like, yeah, it, but it is, it's like formula one, you know, there's a rule change. And then within a couple of years, everybody's kind of converged on the same sets of solutions. Uh, you know, that, that's just the natural order. And, and, you know, you, you put people in a box and they're, they're optimizing to the absolute boundaries of the box. Um, I, I would love to see the box change uh, further, but you know, I they don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if they listen to us either, to be honest. But um, but yeah, if anyone from the UCI is listening, then um, yeah, they can consider that a plea. Just just for the kind of listeners who aren't aware, the Zip three thousand and one. I think that was a, a kind of like monocoque Y shaped frame. Uh, you know, kind of similar in concept to the kind of Lotus one hundred eight. Is that right? Uh, it is yeah, similar in the superbike sense, but it was, uh, I always describe it as, um, being more of a boomerang looking bike. It, okay. So it had a beam, like <laughs> yes. a beam connecting the saddle the to right the head word. tube and then a giant airfoil down tube with no, uh, no seat tube. So, um, it, it, to me, it's one of those things you, you look at like the, the zip 3001 and the Lotus 108 are actually quite competitive despite being pretty wildly different um when you put them next to each other you know you think the the lotus had no down tube and was all top tube and seat tube and the zip bike was the opposite it was all down tube <laughs> and, and i think in a way I, I think allowing tech like that could be quite exciting because you you will end up with bikes that are relatively similar in performance but wildly different looking and um 
you know, the, the closest analogy to that I can think of is, is like World Rally Car, where you have these cars that look pretty crazily different, you know, sedans and hatchbacks and wagons. And, and due to the way the rules are, despite that, they're incredibly competitive with each other. And I, uh, you know, I think, I think we could get there with some intelligent rulemaking uh, through the UCI. Um, yeah, it, it would bring in a whole new era of, of excitement, but I, I give the odds of, <laughs> I had to place the odds of that as being very low. <laughs> No, I think they're probably tightening the rule book as we speak. They're probably listening to all of the things we all of the things we talked about with 3D printing and drawing up a new set of rules. And as you as you say, kind of making sure those sock heights don't get any higher and uh, making sure that <laughs> anything interesting and fun uh, does isn't allowed. But um, yeah, we I, I guess a a girl can dream. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, um, I've taken up uh, a lot of your time there, Josh. So I think we'll we'll leave it there. Thank you uh, so much for uh, talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, and um, if, as I said, if you want to hear more from Josh, obviously you can head to uh, Silka. You can just Google Silka; you'll be able to find them. Or you can subscribe and listen to the Marginal Gains podcast. Of course, if you want to hear more like this from BiteRadar.com, you can visit BiteRadar.com on the website please do subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review if you enjoyed this, as that's really helpful. And if you've got any uh, kind of questions or feedback for us, you can reach us at podcast at bikeradar.com. But thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 